0: It's Sunday, December 10th, day 65 of Hamas's war against Israel. We'll have a live briefing from the IDF, then hear from the insightful Dr. Enoch Wilf. I'm Michael Dixon, and this is Stand With Us TV Live. Shalom from here in Israel, Hanukkah Sameah, Happy Hanukkah. We're live from Israel where the Hanukkah miracle took place, the rededication of our holy temple 2,186 years ago in the eternal, historic, ancestral Jewish capital, Jerusalem, that you can see behind me. I hope that despite what's going on, you're able to celebrate because being able to freely commemorate our history and celebrate our holidays and our heritage is what we're fighting for right now. So thank you for joining us for our weekly briefing. This is week 10, where we break down the war with Hamas and its global fallout. And we'll have a special Hanukkah message at the end of our show today from the IDF Frontline. So stay with us. We're streaming live to stand with our social media platforms as well as YouTube. And you can listen to this and all previous briefings as a podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, in a moment, we'll head to Tel Aviv for a briefing with the IDF spokesperson. But first, a roundup on the last week of Israel at war. The United States vetoes a UN Security Council resolution demanding an immediate ceasefire in the Gaza Strip. Over 70 US lawmakers seek to oust the college heads who refuse to condemn Jewish genocide calls at their institutions during this week's campus anti-Semitism hearing. The UPenn president, Liz McGill, resigned this weekend. The IDF announces the death of more soldiers who have fallen in battle, as the death toll of Israeli soldiers during counter-terrorism operations in Gaza rose. We pay tribute to these heroes and send comfort to their families. May their memories be a blessing. The IDF struck in Syria and hit Hezbollah outposts in Lebanon, following fire from both those countries. Meanwhile, in Gaza, more than 7,000 Palestinian terrorists have been killed, with instances of mass surrender by Hamas forces too. And in a video screened at a Tel Aviv rally, freed Gaza hostage Ophelia Reutman, aged 77, said that the situation in captivity reminded her of the Holocaust. 121 hostages and 17 bodies remain in Hamas captivity in Gaza. May they be returned very soon. Let's get the latest now. Joining us live once again is IDF International Spokesperson, Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Komrikas. Good to have you with us. Lieutenant Colonel, thank you once again.
1: Thank you for having me, Michael. Always a pleasure.
0: Thank you. And in the U.N., we saw this week the United States veto a call for the Security Council to uh, call for a ceasefire. So explain, please, why a premature ceasefire would be disastrous for the campaign against Hamas?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's clear, I think, that it would be disastrous in terms of uh, security, safety for Israelis, uh, for their ability of uh, more than almost 100,000 Israelis to go back to their homes in southern Israel and start the long and difficult process of rebuilding their communities. I don't think that can be done as long as Hamas exists. Uh, even a smaller, weaker Hamas, uh, a wounded Hamas, which is currently their uh, situation, even if that is the case, then they will rebuild. And as they have themselves said, the Hamas leaders have said in many different outlets they're just looking to do october 7th again and again and again uh, so this th- this is really obvious and anybody who has been paying attention to events before october 7th but definitely after uh, for them it's very clear that if we let hamas off the hook if we let if we uh, stop operations and bring about the ceasefire that will be that will be serving only the purposes of hamas Uh, And that is a very, very dangerous thing to be doing. Uh, And I think it's absolutely reckless to be uh, calling for it. And it really shows a lot of a lack of understanding, I think, for the uh, situation. And what I think is even more important to understand is that even if there is a so-called humanitarian ceasefire, Hamas doesn't give a cent about or anything else for that matter, about Gazan civilians. They only care about jihad. They call themselves a culture of martyrdom. They want their shaheeds, they want their martyrs, and they want to continue their so-called armed struggle, their jihad against Israel. So they couldn't care less about uh, the humanitarian situation. And for them, this is only a trick. This is only a tool that they use in order to get global attention to pressure Israel. And finally, if there is a ceasefire, then that would mean many more years of violence, bloodshed, suffering, and instability for the entire region. Because if Hamas is not defeated now, that means that there will be fighting in the future. So it's basically paying now for Israel to pay in blood now for more bad things to happen in the future. And I think that would be a horrible, horrible situation for Israeli civilians living close to Gaza. But you know what? Also for people who live in Gaza, because for them to continue to live under the rule, the oppression of this very brutal terrorist organization, Hamas, which, by the way, steals humanitarian supplies from UN offices that are now being brought in to help Palestinians. Hamas has been documented stealing from these warehouses and beating up Gaza and civilians, so if we want a ceasefire then we understand what it will be used for. All in all, I think not the direction that we should be going, Hamas must be defeated and we will do it while minimizing the effect on civilians and in the very short future that will be a good thing for Israel and also for Palestinians.
0: And let's talk about that effort. We've seen images of Hamas terrorists laying down their weapons, surrendering in large numbers. What's the situation with the tunnels, the fight against Hamas, and particularly in southern Gaza?
1: Yeah, the tunnels—it's absolutely mind-blowing. You know, our troops—they discover every day. They send video footage back, and they discover tunnels. Uh, some of them big enough to have elevators, elevator shaft inside the tunnel, uh, like like an industrial uh, tunnel, really. Uh, We've exposed, I'd say, close to 1,000. The official number is still 800, but that's just because we haven't updated it in the last few days. But we've exposed more than 800. We've destroyed more than 500 in northern Gaza. And as our troops advance and as they fight their way through alley and house and neighborhoods where Hamas are embedding themselves in, We discover more and more tunnels, so uh, it's clear, you know, by the way, speaking about humanitarian efforts, it's clear where probably most of the humanitarian aid that was brought into Gaza over the years, uh, where that has ended up. It's ended up underground. Uh, The cement and the construction material has been turned by Hamas into tunnels, tunnels for warfare and tunnels in order to fight against Israel and to fire rockets at Israeli civilians. So as the fighting goes on, we're making good progress we are pushing Hamas, we're pushing through their lines of defense, which is good, and we are forcing Hamas operatives, the terrorists, out of their hideouts. And the soon or the moment that they actually go out of their hiding places and try to attack our forces, we respond quickly and are able to kill quite a lot of them. And you know. For those who watch IDF video releases, for the first time in quite a while we see Hamas operatives being killed on the battlefield, and uh, we see bodies of dead Hamas uh, operatives that uh, engaged Israeli troops and were subsequently successfully killed, and I think that's a very important message to get out. And what we're seeing is early signs of rupture. It's not the end of Hamas quite yet. They still have command and control capabilities, but we're seeing early signs of weakening and in various compounds around the Gaza Strip, both in the north and in the south, we are seeing Hamas operatives and many that are suspected of being Hamas members surrendering uh, towards the IDF with their hands up. Uh, They're being brought in for questioning. Maybe some of the viewers and maybe some who will be watching this have questions why they're all in their underwear. They're in their underwear because that is a safety procedure that we have in place in order to make sure that they are not carrying explosive devices that will be used against our troops. It's a precautionary step that we take. Once we process them, of course, they're given clothes and they're treated humanely. We are not terrorists and we are not barbaric as they are. So as soon as we make sure that they are not a threat, they are given clothes uh, and uh, they're treated in a dignified manner. I'm not entirely sure sure that they should be treated with so much uh, softness and and care that we do treat them, but those are all values. Uh, So at the end of the day, progress made, lots of tunnels uncovered, amazing level of effort that Hamas has put into this tunnel is becoming more and more apparent and uh, early signs of certain Hamas battalions breaking, but we're still far from the end of the fighting.
0: And what can you tell us now about the situation in the north of Israel and the background to IDF strikes on Lebanon and Syria?
1: Yeah, we've been speaking about this for many weeks now, you and I, and uh, it's been, you know, in many people's minds, the kind of the back burner, but something that could become really the main focus of our operations simply because Hezbollah is the most forbid- formidable enemy that we have in terms of its firepower. This is the organization that the Iranians have spent their most money and weapons and political influence on. So we're talking about a sizable military bigger than Hamas by orders of magnitude. And what we're seeing over the last days is a significant escalation. Uh, Hezbollah has been escalating and we have been responding to their aggression against us and and, uh, I could say that there's a significant escalation in the level of violence up on our northern border. The Chief of Staff, Lieutenant General Herzi Alevi, was up there today. And he had very clear messages. He said to Israeli civilians living up there who are now evacuated from their homes, he told them that they will not be asked to go back to their homes before the situation changes fundamentally on the ground. And he also said that there's a few ways of getting that done. There's the military way of making it happen through force, fire, rockets, tanks, artillery, air force, infantry, etc., and then there's also other options, and of course Israel never tries to use force and war as the first option. We try to explore diplomacy and other channels, but if we, will, we understand that the other venues will not be applicable, then the IDF will have to use a lot of force before our Israeli civilians are asked to return to their homes, because one thing is very clear. We're not going to have a situation where Israeli civilians will be exposed ever again, not in the south, and definitely not along our northern border against Hezbollah.
0: And the notorious Hamas leader, Yahya Sinwa, who is known for his sadistic violence, both against Palestinians and against Israelis,
1: uh, what do we know about his whereabouts? Well, we know that he is uh, extremely fearful of his life. We assess that. We don't know it, but we assess it. And we also assess that he is deep underground and um, carrying himself with extreme caution. And this is a man who has been on uh, our radar for a long time, Uh, a man that we have a lot of intelligence, a lot of peripheral intelligence about, Uh, his house, his family, his uh, financials and many other things. Uh, And we know that he's hiding and he is uh, probably the top target, him and Mohammed Def, I would say the military commander of the uh, Hamas terrorist activities, uh, they are the, uh, I think, the top two priorities, and uh, it's only a matter of time before we get our hands on him, both of them, and as we've said before, all of the Hamas leaders, whether they are inside the Gaza Strip or outside of it, whether they are hiding dozens of meters below ground, eventually we will get our hands on them. Everybody. Anybody who was part of planning the October 7th massacre against Israeli civilians, the rape, the murder, the executions, the hostages, anybody who was part in planning and executing that is a dead man walking and it's only a matter of time, including and specifically Irkya Sinwa. And our
0: friend, Colonel Richard Kemp, who was on the show uh, a few weeks ago together with us, he's been in Israel assessing the war. He said this week that the IDF have achieved a significantly better civilian to combatant casualty ratio in battle than most, if not all, other armies. And he knows what he's talking about. So what can you tell us about this and how that contrasts with the figures that are being released from Hamas's Gaza Ministry of Health?
1: Yes, Colonel Kemp definitely has the personal professional record, uh, as well as the academic uh, record, to really back up such a statement. Uh, he's been on the ground, he's fought in Afghanistan, Iraq, he commanded British troops in Afghanistan, and he's also done quite a lot of writing and studying war in the 20th century, 21st century, and uh, counterterrorism. So he knows what he's talking about. He is a friend of Israel, he is guilty of that, so, uh, of course, we know his perspective, but he's a top-notch professional. Uh, let's put it like this. The numbers that Hamas put forward, uh, whitewashed through their so-called Ministry of Health, are numbers that are designed in order to create a false picture of massive civilian casualties and to obfuscate and to hide and diminish the amount of combatants, of Hamas combatants that have been killed on the battlefield. What I am very saddened about is that so many journalists and outlets and editors and decision makers and even elected officials around the world take these numbers at face value and report them as if they're true. They're not. They're fake. They're a fabrication. I'm sure that there are a lot of people that have been killed, sadly, in Gaza, but many of them are military combatants. Many of them are Hamas members. And it is lamentable, very sad. Each and every civilian that is killed is not our intention. We don't try to kill civilians. If we, were, if we had been trying to kill civilians, then there would have been hundreds of thousands or even more uh, people dead. But we don't do that. We uh, target enemy combatants, Hamas. We have killed thousands of them so far. And hopefully in the near imminent future we will have an updated official IDF estimate of the amount of enemy combatants killed. But what I think we can say with confidence is that we go to great lengths in order to minimize civilian casualties. We warn ahead of strikes. We evacuate civilians from the battlefield. We, in the beginning and the middle of the fighting here, we used roof knocking, and early warning strikes, and many other tactics that nobody else uses. And I think we are proud of our morals in fighting, and we are proud of the fact that we do not try to kill civilians. Uh, But it is very regrettable that we are treated in such an unfair and unbalanced way when it comes to listening to Hamas numbers, and not listening to what we have to say about it. But I'm happy that Colonel Kemp, and now many others are beginning to understand that maybe they shouldn't be taking Hamas figures for uh, at face value and uh, should be really looking through. For those here listening to what we're saying, there's a very smart man. Uh, he goes by the Twitter handle Eisenberg, and he did a an analysis, really an accounting analysis, of UN figures of Palestinian casualties that are based on, not surprisingly, Hamas figures. And he really poked so many holes through those statistics that just uh, anybody serious, any journalist that has any uh, serious credibility, should listen and read what uh, Eisenberg analyzed and then say, well, I can't rely on these figures. I have to take everything with a grain of salt. And at the end of the day, you know, Hamas numbers back and forth. We will defeat Hamas. We will do so while respecting human life and the sanctity of human life, and we will continue to fight until Hamas is finished, and then there will be a much better future for Gaza civilians.
0: And finally, as we head into the next week and you go from interview to TV interview, what messages would you suggest that the large audience watching right now takes to their social media circles and their networks in general?
1: I think you spoke about it in the beginning clip, you know, there are so many people who are uh, working overtime in order to discredit the claims, and, or not the claims, but the testimonials of Israeli survivors uh, who speak about the atrocious crimes, the barbaric crimes that were uh, perpetrated against Israeli men, but specifically women, on the 7th of October. Uh, And I think that should be front and center still, because so many people want to look away. They want to focus only on what's happening now in Gaza and of the visuals coming out of the Gaza Strip and on civilian suffering there, which is understandable, and there is suffering. I'm not saying that there isn't, but I'm saying that there should be uh, honest discussion about how Hamas used sexual violence as a weapon of terror, on the battlefield on October the 7th, which is absolutely abhorrent. That should be a focus and that should be pushed ahead. And people, elected officials, humanitarian organizations, uh, UN bodies, anybody that claims to care for women and minorities and children should be held accountable for uh, their actions or lack of actions when it comes to speaking up about that. And the second thing, which perhaps I should have started with, is... We have to keep our aim on what needs to be accomplished. Uh, We've been fighting now for 65 days in a war that we didn't start and didn't want, but that we understand that we need to finish and we need to set the situation straight in the South so that Israelis can go back to their homes. Israelis have been forced out of their homes for no other reason than just being Jews and Israelis living in their homes. They have been forced out. It's been 65 days, and until the fighting is done, they won't be able to go back and rebuild their homes. And we have to remember that as many people around the world speak about Palestinians and their plight, that's fine. That's sad for them. What we care most about is what our civilians are enduring, and that should be reminded to people around the world who speak about the humanitarian situation and speak about suffering.
0: So important that we're all a voice for the voiceless. Thank you so much, Lieutenant Colonel Comricas, for being with us once again. We appreciate your time very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And if you enjoy our live shows and want to be kept up to speed with all that's happening in Israel, be sure to click on the subscribe button on YouTube. Now, our next guest is a thought leader on Israel, Zionism and foreign policy. And she's also a former member of the Israeli parliament, as well as the author of the excellent books, The War of Return and We Should All Be Zionists. Joining us live from Tel Aviv, it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Anut Wilf.
2: Hello. Thank you.
0: Thank you for being with us. Now, we've got a lot to discuss, but first I want to show you a widely seen video from the halls of Congress this week, where the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and UPenn were questioned on anti-Semitism. Let's take a look.
3: At Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. So is your if testimony it, that it, you will not answer yes? If it uh, is, if the yes speech or becomes, no. if the speech becomes conduct, it can be harassment, yes. Conduct meaning committing the act of genocide? You know what the number one hate crime in America is? I know that over the last couple of months, there has been an alarming rise of anti-Semitism, which I understand is the critical topic that we are here to discuss. That's correct. It is anti-Jewish hate crimes, and Harvard ranks the lowest when it comes to protecting Jewish students. Mr. Kornbluth, at MIT, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate MIT's code of conduct or rules regarding bullying and harassment, yes or no? If targeted at individuals, not making public statements. Yes or no? Calling for the genocide of Jews does not constitute bullying and harassment? I have not heard calling for the genocide for Jews on our campus. But you've heard chants for intifada? I've heard chants, which can be anti-Semitic depending on the context.
0: I mean, if, as academic leaders, you're asked, are calls for violent racism allowed on your campus and your answer is to check your notes, I think you've probably already answered the question. But what did you make of that hearing? And having recently returned from the United States, what do you make of the campus climate today?
2: So the campus climate is something that many people kind of saw it uh, in really very dramatic uh, terms in the congressional hearing. But it's something that has been building for quite some time now. Uh, It's been building as part of a much broader change in the whole academic atmosphere and how people think about free speech and how people think about bullying, harassment, what it means to be safe on campus. We know these ideas have been building for a while. Uh, We have quite a few people who have raised multiple red flags to say that This will not turn out well uh, for Jews, and this is essentially what we saw since October 7th, and uh, that's what we saw in the congressional hearing. A lot of the things that uh, we're now hearing from parents, from prospective students, that they are now looking at universities based on uh, the atmosphere with respect uh, to Jews is something that has been building for a while. The inability of universities to be clear on free speech is also something that we've been building for a while. Because you can't imagine an alternative universe where universities, for example, uh, for years are na- known as bastions of free speech and even the most horrific kind. In this case, the university administrators would have had an easy time and they would say, all free speech is protected, even horrific free speech, end of story. The problem is, of course, is that they've spent the last few years uh, very much restricting free speech on account of bullying, safety, harassment, all of the things that have been raised in the congressional hearing. And then suddenly when it comes to Jews, to Zionism, to Israel, then suddenly all these universities become deeply concerned with free speech. And I think above all, it is the hypocrisy that people found galling.
0: And so from campus to the Security Council, we've seen increased calls for a ceasefire. Uh, What's your reaction to those calls? And if not a ceasefire, then what?
2: So, Pretty much from the early days, I've been saying that anyone uh, who calls for a ceasefire is not serious unless they're actually detailing what is required for a ceasefire to be effective and successful. And that is, of course, first and foremost, the release of all hostages, uh, the disarmament of Hamas and exposure of all tunnels, the Handing over of the planners and perpetrators of October seventh uh, to justice, and a public commitment to move away from for, from the river to the sea ideology, which is the ground reason of why October seventh even happened. Uh, finally, today, we have the u.S. Secretary of State making it clear that if Hamas surrenders, uh, the fighting can end tomorrow. That is the first time that we're hearing a clear detailing of the conditions for ending the fighting. And that's what we should have heard from anyone who deems to be a serious person, uh, from the UN Secretary General to any senior politician. Just calling for general ceasefire is at best like being a beauty queen who calls for world peace. Hmm. It's not what I would expect from serious policymakers. You want a ceasefire, you want the war to end, we do too, but be be very clear on what are the conditions that would end the war and bring a ceasefire.
0: And many people are insisting that Israel has that those conditions, you know, a clear plan for the day after, but the day after for Palestinian leadership may look very different from the day after, according to Israelis. And that's something that you've studied also in your book about Palestinian demands for the Right to return. So, talk us through how what Palestinian conceptions of what the day after might look like and why those would not be acceptable for peace.
2: The Palestinian conception of the day before, the day today, and the day after are have always been the same uh, for the last century. I mean, to their credit, they've been consistent. Uh, The idea that the Jews cannot have a sovereign state anywhere in the land, in any borders, in any territory. That has been their number one priority. Every decision, every action that they have taken uh, throughout the last century from the 1920s into the 2020s has been guided by that idea. This is the reason that Gaza is in the situation that it is because Gaza has been viewed by its inhabitants not as an opportunity to demonstrate what a sovereign Palestinian state uh, could be like as a prosperous, successful state, but rather as literally a launch pad from which to liberate Palestine from the river to the sea. About three quarters of the people who live in Gaza view themselves, despite having been born in Gaza uh, and always living in Gaza, actually as the refugees from Palestine, As far as they're considered, Gaza is not sufficiently Palestine. It's only the Palestine from the river to the sea, the one that will erase and displace Israel. So that's the war that they've been fighting. Hamas, in that respect, has been a very successful representative of the idea of from the river to the sea of liberating Palestine. So, if we are to ever have a different day after, and this is what I emphasize should be Israel's and should be actually the world community's conditions for future peace, because that has been the reason we didn't have peace for the last century, is that Palestinians should finally become a people who are focused on building a state for themselves rather than destroying what the Jews have built. Once that becomes the Palestinian priority, Everything else falls into place.
0: And I wanted to ask you, why, in your view, have so many people, and particularly on the left, been so willing around the world to accept at face value some of the most heinous lies that are told about Israel or some of the misinformation that's come out during this war effort? And I'm minded of when uh, the al ahli bo- uh, hospital bombing took place. Uh, We saw, you know, within seconds, it was obviously Israel and and, uh, conclusions were jumped to. And yet when the facts came out, even once those facts came out, there wasn't always a willingness to accept those as facts. So what do you put that down to?
2: So the broader background is one that, again, we've seen built over decades Uh, It's one that I've come to call the placard strategy because you see it on placards in anti-Israel demonstrations. The placards are structured as Israel or Zionism or sometimes just the Star of David and then an equation sign. And then the other side of the equation basically has a litany of evils, uh, right? Zionism, Israel equals uh, racism and uh, colonialism and apartheid. And then it escalates into genocide and Nazism. And, uh, of course, you have uh, white supremacy. uh, That is an American flavor of the placard strategy. And the placard strategy is not just in demonstrations. It's on social media and general media and the United Nations. Zionism is racism, apartheid. So this has been a process that has been decades in the making that essentially equated Israel and Zionism and the Star of David with the world's evils. And as a result, once you have that mental foundation uh, that you believe that Israel and Zionism are the basically evil incarnate, then anything you hear that fits to the idea that they are evil will be immediately accepted. In general, uh, adults are not different from children. We like uh, to have our stories told and retold and retold. So things that confirm the stories we want to believe in are the ones that we will believe. And for example, the story of uh, the bombing in the hospital was one that was especially uh, necessary because if you noticed... For it was, I think, on the 11th day of the fighting. And for about 10 days, all the anti Israel, uh, pro Palestine uh, speakers, especially in the West, if you saw, they were not on Twitter, they were not on social media, they all went quiet after the October 7th attacks because they didn't know what to do when the pure victim Palestinians suddenly committed these heinous crimes. So all their protectors and defenders in the West essentially went quiet. And as soon as you had the claim on the hospital bombing, that is exactly what they needed. And it was Mm -hmm. amazing. I followed it closely. They all appeared on Twitter within seconds. You could Feel all this like repressed energy released that they could finally, finally go back and the world was right again. Israel is evil. Hamas, pure victims.
0: And I guess there's another reason why, as we discussed in our previous interview, it's so important for us to remind people of what happened on October the 7th. Uh, I know you have a new five-part YouTube series coming up titled Zionism and Anti-Zionism, A History of Two Opposing Ideas. Uh, Tell us a bit about that, please.
2: Uh, Certainly. Uh, Two years ago, I was uh, a visiting professor at Georgetown, and uh, one of the courses I taught was called Zionism and Anti-Zionism, and it went through the last 150 years or so of these two opposing ideas and movements. And one of my students, uh, any professor should want such a student, Zoe Tara Tigerman, uh, Zeigerman, basically uh, said, okay, uh, everyone should hear this course. And she's both uh, a Jewish civilizations and a film major at Georgetown. And she raised money and uh, she had a complete vision of how this should become a YouTube mini-series uh, with beautiful design and a conversation that is easy to watch and uh, to digest. And it became essentially a five-part miniseries that's going to be launched next week in LA. And uh, I think by the end of January, should be widely available on YouTube. Each episode is about 40 minutes. So five times 40 minutes, and you have the entire history, and you can become actually very informed about Zionism and anti-Zionism.
0: And I know that Stand With Us is a proud event partner for that event at UCLA Hillel. That's taking place on December the 12th at 7 p.m. Finally, Dr. Wilf, what should the Jewish world's response be and the response of people who wish to stand with Israel to the post-October the 7th world?
2: Ultimately, the response is first uh, one of attitude. Uh, an attitude of confidence, an attitude of solidarity with the Jewish people, with Israel. Uh, It's certainly a very difficult time, and it's not easy, and uh, certainly we're not having an easy time here, but I think we're finally, a lot of people are finally seeing clearly not just what happened on October 7th, but the last century of the conflict, where it was never about what Israel did, but always about what Israel was, which was the sovereign state of the Jewish people, that this has always been the cause of the conflict. Everything else was actually always the outcome rather than the cause. And this is the thing that we need to fight and ultimately And this I really want to emphasize, ultimately, we want to have a vision of peace and a vision of peace. And every Jew in the world should hold to that, should be built on finally the Arab world and especially the Palestinians, letting go of a century of thinking that there should not be a Jewish state anywhere in the land. As Herzl envisioned, there's room for everyone, there's room for a Jewish sovereign state, and one day, if the Palestinians really reconstitute themselves as a forward-looking people who only want to build for themselves rather than to destroy for others, then we should live side by side in peace.
0: And I do hope that everyone will follow you across social media. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us, as you have, as you have so many times before. Uh, on behalf of Stand with us, thank you, Dr. Enoch Wealth.
2: Thank you, and for all that you do.
0: Thank you. Fascinating stuff. And before we go, it's Hanukkah. And on October the 7th, Hamas terrorists kidnapped Yardin Roman and her husband, Alon, and their three-year-old daughter, Geffen, from southern Israel. Now, during a moment when the terrorists got distracted, Yarden urged Alon to escape with their child. They split from one another as Alon carried Geffen, hiding for 20 hours until reaching safety. And Yardin was recaptured by the terrorist's and g- dragged into Gaza, but after 54 days in Hamas captivity, she was freed. And now Yarden, Alon, and Geffen are celebrating Hanukkah together. Take a look. <laughs>
3: Amen.
1: بالي خصاك <reencient> <unemployed> <Mayor> <Zelensky> <promptin> <changing> <latitude> <obviamente>
0: Light will always drive out darkness. And meanwhile, here's a clip from this Friday. On October 7th, high school student Mia Leimbach and her mother Gabriella were kidnapped by Hamas. They returned to Israel after 57 days in which they were held hostage in Gaza. So on Friday, Mia returned to school. And this is how her friends at the Jerusalem High School for the Arts welcomed her back. Beautiful. And just before we say goodbye, a message from one of our modern day Maccabees on the front line. Stand with us, tourism director and current IDF reservist, Yoni Zela.
4: Happy Hanukkah, everyone. You know, Hanukkah is the holiday that literally reminds us to look on the bright side. It's the holiday of light and miracles, especially in times like these, when since October 7th, it seemed like there's a great darkness that is any moment now going to consume us, Hanukkah reminds us, stop, take a look around, and see where you can find the small lights that can dispel a lot of darkness. And remember that the darker it is, the more powerful those small lights can be. You wake up on a cold, rainy morning with a warm cup of coffee, that's a miracle. I get to sleep in my own bed and won't be woken up by my two daughters jumping on me, that's an even bigger miracle. And even if I'm waking up here on the IDF base, wearing this uniform, protecting the same people in the same land that the Maccabees protected over 2000 years ago, well that, that's one heck of a miracle. The definition of an undying light, an everlasting flame that cannot be extinguished. This Hanukkah, we are all part of history and all a part of that great light that is created when we unite all of our small miracles and all of our lights together. (laughs) Chagurim Sameach.
0: Amen to that. Thank you, Yoni, and stay safe. A big shout out to the huge audience getting ready to attend the Stand With Us Festival of Lights tonight in Los Angeles. It's set to be a powerful evening of solidarity and support for our great cause. And if you weren't able to be in LA today, but you'd like to support the work that we do in your region, we have offices around the world. Head to stanwithus.com slash donate. That's stanwithus.com slash donate. No briefing next week, but we'll be back the week after. Keep following Stan with us social media for updates. And you can start by sharing this briefing with your networks. We're sending love to the Israeli troops and to our brothers and sisters and allies around the world. You're all modern-day Maccabees, and our prayers for every hostage to be home with their family soon. Thanks for watching. Happy Hanukkah and Am Yisrael Chai.